This is Steve Smith at the California Western School of Law, and I call the Law Review to order for the last time this year. It's New Year's Eve, and our legal roundtable is here to take a look back at the major legal developments of 2012. We welcome our special group to discuss these legal topics. We have John Fisk with the firm of Barry Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, and Wendy Patrick, an attorney and professor at San Diego State University. Our guests are here today speaking as individual educators, not as representatives of their office. Thank you all for joining us for this special Law Review Roundtable. 2012 has been really quite a year, a lot of law, a lot of news in law. So, Wendy Patrick, what do you think the most important legal event was of 2012? (laughs) You know, it depends on who you talk to, doesn't it? But I can tell you this, one of the things that's distinguished society in so many different ways, legally and otherwise, is the way social media has permeated so many legal issues in 2012. I mean, exponentially above even last year. It has seeped its way into the biggest scandals the country has seen, the privacy, the the legality of what employers can do as far as looking at what their employees are doing, hiring practice of companies, CEO misconduct. One of the common denominators that really distinguishes 2012 from any year thus far is that it really, there are just so many issues involved even touch the like the terms of service the contractual the copyright issues that are floating around all over that was a big one that's true judge medell what would you put as the big legal issue well i paid attention uh, very closely to the supreme court's decisions having to do with obamacare the constitutionality thereof as well as the arizona uh, immigration laws and uh, felt that those were uh, extremely important decisions that were made. Unfortunately, as a sitting Superior Court judge, I I can't comment on those, so I'm going to have to throw it off to my colleagues here to uh, uh, explain those a little bit. Well, Judge Medell, I appreciate that. This is John Fisk here, and I, too, selected, uh, when tasked with the the challenge, of selecting the uh, largest or most important legal event of 2012, And uh, the Affordable Care Act, which people commonly refer to as Obamacare, was held to be constitutional by the United States Supreme Court in 2012. And the reason that a lot of scholars believe that this is an incredibly important legal event is because of a lot of what these justices said in their opinion. Uh, There is a clause in the United States Constitution called the Commerce Clause, and it grants Congress the ability Uh, to uh, control commerce among the different states and in the nation um, to be broad about it. And essentially what uh, the justices did, um, although this wasn't determinative on the ultimate outcome of the Affordable Care Act and its constitutionality, what the justices did was basically reduce uh, quite significantly, using their language, the scope um, and the breadth of what the Commerce Clause means and what Congress can do under the Commerce Clause. And this could have far-reaching effects in, in years to come. So I thought that was the most important legal event. And, and uh, just tag on, because I thought that was a big, I, I'm going to say it was the second biggest legal development. Uh, the, the biggest would be the beginning of the Law Review podcast. Of ah, course. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, the, but the other part of that was the expansion of the taxing authority of Congress. Uh, under in, in that decision uh, the, of the chief justice, so that both of those are going to have 
potentially huge impacts uh, I, for years to come. I agree. And in fact, that's what I um, uh, listed in a, as the biggest legal surprise. Well, let's move to the biggest legal surprise. So your surprise was the the, basis for— My surprise was that Justice John Roberts, who is a conservative, was known as a conservative uh, justice on the Supreme Court, sided with the four what people would commonly refer to as the liberal justices. And he did so in the ultimate decision of upholding the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare by finding that the Affordable Care Act— was constitutional under Congress's taxing power, which so is— So the penalty was a tax. The penalty to not buy uh, um, health care for your own insurance was a, was a tax, which is something that the, that the lawyers didn't really focus on yeah, much. Yeah, they didn't, yeah. I, I think you could—hopefully uh, not commenting on it too much, but <laughs> I think you could see it just the, the other way. It's we have the ability to tax you in order to raise funds for health care. And if you, but if you don't want to be taxed, go buy your own health insurance. That, yeah, and if Congress and I think that, that that's way, what that's what the focus case, is. I right. Think. And, and I think that's probably the more intellectual way that, uh, or judicial way. Well, another uh, surprise, maybe another surprise in the case for a lot of constitutional scholars was that the, uh, the efforts that Congress made to induce the states to expand Medicaid within the states was uh, part of it was ruled unconstitutional the new the new part was essentially ruled and that had not really happened before with a coercive effect uh, to the states to expand a federal program and and so that will probably have some uh, that was surprised a lot of people judge Medell, were you surprised at anything during the course of the year um you know what um not surprised at anything but maybe some of the substantive developments we had uh in terms of uh, our uh, general petraeus and those other issues yeah. that came up that was uh, m- more factually than than it was uh, legally in those sorts of situations <laughs> wendy yeah you know one of the things i could go on forever on general petraeus but and that ties right back into some of my social media you know how do we know who's doing what is everybody does it on email it's easy for us to print it out and put an evidence tag on it but um, kind of going back to the healthcare issue, one of the things, sadly, that I think characterized 2012 is the amount of gun violence. And that, obviously, we could talk about gun control, but I think what a lot of people are talking about is mental health issues. How can we as a society remove the stigma that surrounds mental health? Is it that big of a deal for an employee to say, I feel like I need to talk to somebody? Why should we... Why should we still be in the dark ages of having some, that kind of a stigma attached to it? I think a lot of people are looking at the really at an unmeasurable amount compared to years past of gun violence we've had. Every single case, we are now finding out that there are some significant mental health issues that went undiagnosed largely because they flew under the radar in so many different circumstances, whether it was at school or at work. You know, Matthew Holmes is in a PhD program. I mean, you just, everybody just, nobody looked at the red flags because nobody was paying attention. The other part that we should do a program on uh, in 2013 is the issue of involuntary uh, mental health care that I've heard a number of people talking about again. It's been a, an issue of debate for 45, 50 years, and it's that's coming to the fore again, too. That That's true. I would, I would add one other surprise, which is that the size of penalties that U.S. corporations are paying for misconduct. The, the banks in the United States pay the U.S. alone, forgetting Europe, pay the U.S. alone 
$10 billion, over $10 billion in penalties. There were billions of dollars from the pharmaceutical industry, BP oil, of course, and on and on. Huge, huge penalties they're developing now that you didn't see before. These were almost all record setting. And, and, and that was a, a surprise to me, the degree to which that, uh, that happened. Well, well, how about a, a, a legal hero or a legal villain? John, did you? Well, in uh, 2012, uh, we as broadcasters here, if I can call us that, uh, we're lucky enough to have an election, which gave us quite a bit of content. And in 2012, I think the biggest legal hero or villain, depending on someone's political viewpoints and, and so, sort of social or moral standing, is that of uh, newly elected U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, because she is the first United States senator who is openly gay to be elected. And so I thought that was pretty significant, one way or the other. Yeah. Wendy, any uh, heroes? <laughs> there, there are far too many for me to select. Oh, just oh, that is, uh, that Especially is in an election kind. year, there are yeah. far oh, that's too many. True. Yeah. <laughs> Judge Medell, did you have a hero? No, I really, I really didn't have a hero uh, uh, this year in terms of in terms of illegalities. I, I, perhaps, uh, uh, depending on your viewpoint, talking about um, both the. Um, um, the Arizona uh, immigration case, as well as the uh, ruling on Obamacare, uh, that it took uh, perhaps for some some degree of courage to um, sort of shift to the other side, as John said, and, and make sure that we got something that would hold in terms of good, solid law. So um, to, uh, to the extent we could read in that uh, people did that, I think uh, those people might be uh, heroic. In yeah, I think, I think that that's, I think that is true. I think the, the, the judges, and you would... Uh, not say this, but I'll say the judges in the United States who have the courage, whether it's a trial court judge, an appellate judge, uh, the, the courage to do what the law says or what they think is right is really what preserves our democracy and our freedom. And when you talk to countries that have not had that, whether it's in South America or in Eastern Europe, the thing they respect most about of the United States uh, legal system is the independence of the judiciary. That happens only because uh, of the uh, the heroes who are judges, and it's not easy, uh, and, and it sometimes requires real courage. And we've seen recalls of judges for people disagreeing with them. And and uh, so my heroes are the judges who 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 uh, are brave enough to uh, to take on tough tough jobs. So let's talk about the sleeper event. Was there anything that the importance was not, that really wasn't recognized that much that you saw this year? Well, again, going back to the uh, election in 2012, uh, and this, of course, crosses over in from legal into uh, political or sociopolitical, but uh, there were two very significant issues that were uh, voted on across the country in different states. Uh, the first one is same-sex marriage. And for the first time ever, we saw that same-sex marriage was approved by the voters in multiple states. It was the first time ever in 2012 that same-sex marriage was voted on by a popular vote. And it actually happened not in one state, but what appears to be three states, in Maine, Maryland, and also Washington state. Um, in some of the states, it was a popular vote to approve it. And some of the states, it was, a, it was put to a popular vote to... Uh, overrule essentially the lawmakers' decision to approve same-sex marriage, but Maine, Maryland, and Wisconsin all had same-sex marriage approval by popular vote. Uh, also, Minnesota, uh, by popular vote, opposed a ban to same-sex marriage, and um, of course, we already spoke about Wisconsin and Senator Tammy Baldwin being elected. 
The other major issue is um, the the vote for marijuana legalization. And it's not just medical marijuana legalization, but by a popular vote, the states of Washington and Colorado, just the states, not the federal government, uh, voted to approve and legalize the recreational use of marijuana for those ages 21 and older. I believe the rules in at least Colorado or Washington, I can't remember which state, but were that a, someone over the age of 21 could carry an ounce of marijuana. And, and, and that's a sleeper in part, I suppose, because it sets up a bunch of legal problems between the states and the federal government, because it's still, as you were saying, it was, it's still illegal under federal law Absolutely. to do what the state law now says you can do. Well, and that's that's the issue. That's why I think, um, you know, for the sleeper, I, I feel like I didn't hear too much about it in the news with regards to the same-sex marriage and with medical, or I'm sorry, the recreational marijuana. It's a sleeper because nobody really knows what to do with it yet. Right. How is the federal government going to react? And if the idea behind the legalization of recreational use marijuana, as it is for so many proponents, is to tax it, Oh my lord, we, they, that these measures didn't go anywhere near the selling, production and taxation of recreational use, just the possession of an ounce essentially. I uh, do believe the president uh, has made a pronouncement that uh, that would not be a top priority uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the federal government. Okay. <laughs> Wendy um, talking about sleeper events of 2012, one of the things that you'll all recall occurred about mid-year was this whole Chick-fil-A scandal where there oh, was, right. where we were talking about Dan Cathy's Christian views and can employers regulate what their employers do, what their employees do when they're on their noon hour. Um, and it raised the boundaries of the First Amendment. And I think it was, I mean, that video went viral, right? Social media terminology. And everybody was involved. And, you know, you had mayors of different, uh, different, uh, cities claiming they were going to deny business license and then dialing back that rhetoric obviously recognizing they can't do that but it the this boundaries of the first amendment issue was brought to the forefront and just when we thought it was really going to yield some very healthy and much needed dialogue i mean what employee doesn't want to know what are the boundaries as to when what i can and can't do when i'm not on the clock is the noon hour because it's the middle of the workday? Can I do and say anything I want? What about on my Facebook page? You may recall people were getting fired for portraying their companies as a, in a bad light when, when they were at night doing, you know, saying things on Facebook. The whole issue of First Amendment and where does it cross over into privacy issues came to a head and then fizzled just when we thought perhaps it was going to turn into some clear guidelines for the rest of it, for the rest of us. So I thought that was sort of a sleeper event that I'm sure will be reignited the next time some video goes viral. Well, that, well that's uh, that is what sleeper events are. They're when they wake up, <laughs> they wake uh, up. <laughs> after a while. I guess I would put one that's going to sound like so much inside baseball, but I think it's important. Which is there's a new focus on the ineffective assistance of counsel. In criminal cases, the Constitution guarantees the right to assistance of counsel, which includes appointed counsel, uh, and and yet sometimes the performance of an attorney in a criminal this is unusual, but once in a while in the performance of an attorney in a criminal case is so awful that it's at least as bad as not having any counsel at all, maybe worse. And that's been true for a long time, and the Supreme Court has recognized that at some point 
that someone's denied counsel by having ineffective assistance of counsel. The Supreme Court has started looking at those cases. It's expanding where effective assistance of counsel must be present. So now it includes plea bargaining, where most criminal cases are resolved, of course. But it also in includes just talking to people about the ancillary consequences, the major consequences, like being deported uh, if you plead guilty. And uh, you, I just have this sense that the whole jurisprudence of ineffective assistance of counsel is, is changing. Hmm. You know, one of the interesting things about that point, Steve, is um, it, it brings to mind the pending set of ethical rules that our California Supreme Court has in front of it. Um, obviously, California, as many of our listeners know, has the distinction of being the one state that doesn't currently follow some version of the ABA model rules. There is a proposed set of rules that is in front of the Supreme Court. They haven't adopted them yet. But one of the things that um, one of the proposed rules that's almost identical to the ABA is competence. And it's significant because there are lots of rules currently um, that the ABA has that we don't. One of them is allocation of authority. And part of that has to do with exactly what you brought up. Um, what, you know, when does the client call the shots on what parts of litigation versus when does the lawyer call the shots? Clearly ethical rules, it doesn't, it doesn't say this, but it insinuates in that rule and others that when it comes to ethical guidelines, that's something that, you know, where the lawyer decides what he or she is going to do. But it's a great point you point out because if courts are going to start to um, litigate more frequently in this arena, we should be cognizant of the fact that we currently are distinguished by not following some version of the ABA model rules, at least for now. Our guests today on Law Review are John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, and Wendy Patrick. Well, let's turn to a kind of a downer. So what was the biggest uh, mistake, the biggest legal mistake of 2012? I'm inclined, since we're recording this on New Year's Eve uh, and Congress hasn't done anything about the cliff yet, for Congress to think that it would force itself to get down to making serious work if it created the fiscal cliff. Uh, it may avoid it, but it has not created that we'll get down to serious work early. Uh, John, what did you see as the, the, the biggest mis legal mistake? Well, I, I didn't know if this legal mistake was made in 2012 or if it was revealed in 2012. But the biggest legal mistake of 2012, in my mind, was um, the legal issues surrounding Lance Armstrong and his anti-doping uh, lawsuits. Um, he decided this year, in 2012, to essentially stop fighting. Uh, for many years, he had been accused by uh, European organizations and the United States Anti-Doping Association uh, of, of essentially using drugs during his seven famous world-record-breaking world uh, Tour de France uh, championships. And um, he had been, you know, considered that's you're too dominant and you're too amazing and you must have been doping. And there had been much fight about it for many, many years, as we all know. And this year, he's decided to stop fighting. So, so that's a private organization. Is that essentially a contract issue? You know, I don't know. That's a really good question. But I, what I do know is that Lance Armstrong essentially said when he decided to stop fighting that it was costing him too much money. And that to, he to, was to, willing to, to fight the, the, the factual issue of whether in, he had been In attorney's fees, in, in appeals, in legal battles, it was costing him too much money. And it essentially became a war of attrition that he lost. And whether the legal mistake was for him to stop fighting or whether the legal mistake was for him to f fight and continue fighting in the first place is up for maybe God to know, but um, or maybe God and Lance Armstrong. But for the rest of us, uh, it seems like a mistake one way or the other. Of course, those are... Uh 
multifactorial decisions that are made. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, someone makes a decision like that because the uh, fight is too taxing. Uh, sometimes they make the decision based on economic factors, but uh, you never know really what's in their mind. You know, one of the things, again, that I think characterizes um, 2012, it, and again, this may, this may be because it's easier for us to find these things out, but we have seen an enormous amount of CEO scandals in 2012. And yeah. it's, um, I teach business ethics at San Diego State, and it's always, you know, there, I'm never at a loss for new <laughs> material examples. to teach yeah. week by week. Because Do there you think is it's increasing or, or, or they're just getting caught more? I think the latter because of some of what we've already discussed. Um, one of the recent ones that comes to mind is someone that listed a degree on their resume that the college they attended didn't even offer at the time they went there. And you, you think of what people may have been getting away with for years prior to this. But the whole tone at the top, you know, we teach our kids in, about role modeling and mentoring and, you know, really setting an example for folks that are to follow in your footsteps. And I, it's amazing at how frequently and how easy it is to find sometimes blatant misconduct at the top. And I think that's probably, I don't know if there's, is there a most surprising legal mistake category? I would have to say, <laughs> if you are the CEO of a large oh, yeah. company that is prestigious and profitable and in the news, you would think that would be the last person who would dare? Who would Although care? there's an element of almost expecting or wanting to get caught in some of this. I mean, people who are involved with security doing emails in a way that they have to be able to know is not secure. And you know, we I, you've, we brought up Jeffrey Sinclair earlier, and one of the things I think that characterized the sexual misconduct in that case was just the brazen and almost blatant nature, almost believing um, of invincibility. And, and this is just, you know, this is based on the reporting of what was said and done. Um, invincibility, I think that there's lots of people who just believe that for whatever reason they can be that blatant and, and nobody will report it, I don't know. As long as people are human, there will be these mistakes <laughs> repeated over and over, and well, as long as there is power, there will be abuse. Well, I suppose it's just as well for the legal community. If people didn't make mistakes, there wouldn't be that much need for lawyers. That's right, probably. and power tends to corrupt. <laughs> yeah, right. it does. Tends That's true. To, yeah. Not always. Well, let, let me let me suggest one completely different uh, legal mistake, which is is the funding for the, the for courts mm -hmm. around the country. Uh, we're here in California. Uh, Judge Medell spoke to that a couple of weeks ago when we, we were doing a podcast. But you hear this from around the country, and uh, primarily the state courts because of the, the nature of state budgets. Uh, that is, is beginning to have a real impact on the ability of the courts to deliver justice. So that's my nomination for, for that category. Okay, uh, let's move to a strange category, which I call the dog that didn't bark in 2012, meaning something that we thought would be a big deal that just sort of fizzled or didn't explode. John, what do you think? Well, the dog that didn't bark, or rather the dog that barked but didn't bite uh, in, in 2012, uh, has specifically to do with my practice in civil litigation and in personal injury. In 2011, there was a, a very, very important California Supreme Court case that uh, made a decision on how medical costs and expenses were to be calculated in trial. And essentially, it was the amount that an insurance company um, or a single payer paid, um, not the amount that the hospital billed. And that is a very significant um, consequence when you are an injured plaintiff in the amount of money that you can claim. 
And uh, the reaction to that at the end of 2011 and in the beginning of 2012 was that all of the uh, plaintiff's attorneys, essentially, and uh, the legislatures were going to get together uh, for the benefit of plaintiffs and for the benefit of actually um, hospitals and health insurance companies because they uh, in turn get reimbursed for monies that they've paid out. Um, they were all going to get together and create a law to overturn, essentially, or make moot the California Supreme Court case. And lo and behold, that bill was just shelved. And I don't think, I, I don't know where it is right now, but it certainly didn't happen. I, another dog that didn't bark, I guess, was the presidential election lawsuits. Remember, there were these tons of attorneys, thousands of attorneys <laughs> scattered across Ohio and Pennsylvania <laughs> and Florida and whatnot to file lawsuits regarding the election. Of course, they, that was unnecessary, but I, I thought there would be uh, empty law offices countrywide uh, for the two weeks before the election. Uh, well, you know, related to that, Dean Smith, uh, and I think I can be comfortable in commenting on this, is the dog uh, the dog that actually finally barked. <laughs> and that's, I believe it was this year that President Obama, at the very uh, critical moment uh, when he was attempting to get past his health care plan, actually produced his birth certificate to oh, the, yeah. oh. <laughs> oh, that, that to was, the Was that the Donald Trump uh, <laughs> yeah. episode? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, which I right. thought right. was um, uh, the waiting period and the suspense on that, which went for years and years and years, was a matter of great... Uh, a great comic timing. Here. Sort of that. It's, was, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's its own drama that right. went on for, for months. That's true. Well, another dog that I guess that didn't bark was the appointment of federal judges. There are uh, mm. a lot. We've talked before about that the, the president nominates judges. They're confirmed by the Senate. And the White House really has a lot of positions it hasn't nominated anyone for. And I think there are still 35 or thereabouts uh, judges who have been nominated but not acted upon by the, the Senate. And that means a lot of federal judgeships that are unfilled. And, and not unrelated to that is, is the sort of ongoing problem of the politicization um, of the federal judicial appointment process and uh, judge Bork just passed away this uh, this week, and it's a reminder of, uh, it didn't start with him, but it became uh, uh, an art uh, with, I think, his nomination, and uh, uh, that's part of it. But that's that has been, a, the, the, the confirmation of judges is another uh, dog that didn't bark, I suppose. Well, is there a louder, loudest barking dog category? <laughs> if so, if so, what I would say that we, again, this is a trend, I think, that's um, really getting some momentum in 2012 is this issue of lawyer civility. Yeah. And we could almost tie that into any other topic we discuss because there are more and more cases where judges are really emphasizing that maybe technically there wasn't an ethics violation or maybe not even a violation legally otherwise, but they are sanctioning based on uncivil behavior. And that that was unheard of hmm. at, at some time in the past. And more and more frequently, we're seeing lawyers getting sanctioned for conduct that no one would bat an eye at. It would be a, it would be a dog that didn't bark. Nobody would even notice it 20 years ago. And now it is very pervasive. I think I can, there were very, oh, I'm sorry. I can tell you that it's old dogs barking. <laughs> because the old dogs were used to, at least here in San Diego. Are you an old dog? I'm an old dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an old judicial dog now, too. Well, not an old judicial, well, but 
the, the custom and practice here in San Diego, it being a small, uh, as I mentioned before, Andy of Mayberry community, even though the numbers were big, uh, was that everyone got along well, especially in the civil departments. Criminal lawyers, believe it or not, seem to get along better than the civil law does, even though we're uh, in the civil bar characterized as civil. It's, it's, it's an irony in terms. But um, that's changing, and I, I will say some of our larger metropolitan neighbors might be influencing that a little bit. Um, but it is a, a thorn in our side to have lawyers not get along on the most simple uh, procedural or legal issues that would move a case along expeditiously, eliminate a lot of uh, uh, court time, uh, and uh, make everyone a lot more happy. The, the three of you are in court all the time. Don't you think there are sanctions, whether they're formally imposed or not, for this kind of conduct? I mean, don't people pay a price? Don't attorneys pay a price for this nonsense? Oh, absolutely. You know, you, when you talk about all the different ramifications that could potentially stem from ethics violations, everybody says, oh, state bar comes after you, the judge can come after you, but your reputation precedes you, and you can spend 30 years. I mean, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, and I mean, everybody knows this, but the fact that everybody knows it doesn't seem to bother some and really we're talking about very few people yeah that's Mo you know most lawyers they, they I mean, are attention they, getting though yeah I and mean, most lawyers get along they're they they concede yeah they don't you know they don't fight a continuance if nobody's going to be harmed there's no prejudice but you're absolutely right the couple of bad apples really splash upon the rest of us nationwide yeah. and again it's it's so easy to now online keep track and keep tabs on what our colleagues are doing all over the country that, and again, these are our potential jurors, which is one of the reasons we care uh, more than anything else is we're all sort of characterized in that same light. But yeah, civility is um, really front and center in 2012. And, and it seems extremely disappointing when I see, uh, at least in the civil world, attorneys' egos uh, get in the way of their client's justice one way or the other. And that's really what I see happening is egos get in the way of serving the client's best interests. Well, maybe our New Year's resolution ought to in part include really keeping to keep working on that as a profession. Because humility. Really, humility. Humility is a virtue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Smith, the, uh, the real uh, victim uh, when lawyers behave uncivilly and generate a lot of unnecessary court hearings are their clients yeah. because every yeah. time they're unnecessarily in court battling on an issue that's a trivial issue they don't need to battle on uh, both the insurance usually an insurance uh, client for the defense and the actual client for a plaintiff's lawyer is charging them money for that time it, and it's that's, interesting that's really because I, I hear some attorneys say that, that their clients push them to be nasty and go the extra mile and at least until they get tired out or lose enough and, money and i find that relatively hard to believe uh, oh, okay. in terms of my experience because when i effectively communicate with my client why it's helpful for them that we get along we concede the issues we gain credibility the judge likes us the defense attorney likes us the insurance adjuster likes us one of the best things we can do is if the insurance adjuster it, likes us it, yeah, then, then it sense. helps them in their case so at least from the plaintiff's side effective communication with the client tends to um uh, dampen their their passion or their ego. But having been a defense lawyer representing <laughs> doctors, I cannot tell you how many times the first uh, interview with the client started with, "Okay, I need someone who's aggressive and is going to go completely out for me and just battle and and not be a very nice person." There you go. 
Well, I think the communication <clears throat> issue that both Ken and John just raised is huge because it really can may, it be the deciding factor as to how the litigation ends up and how whether or not your client is served. Um, one of the things we all do, we have the right you got the first meeting with your client, bonding, rapport building, et cetera. But if they're not kept apprised of the significant, obviously the ethics rule says you're supposed to keep them apprised of significant developments they end up not knowing what's going on and you end up really not representing their best interest because there isn't that communication. They may think that they want you to be the bulldog in the courtroom and you all remember that uh, attorney ad about the bulldog on, you remember? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that a lot of the time it's because they don't understand the, the way to get and, things done is And that was John's, really John's yeah. point. You have yeah. to explain it in, in, re, in real terms. Yeah. It's yeah. not in your interest to, to, to be that way. Well, let's, let's talk uh, about... Who, who had the greatest legal impact during the course of this year? Well, uh, the greatest legal impact uh, for me was maybe because it happened so recently in time, but um, the, the young man, Adam Lanza, who uh, we now think may have had some mental health uh, concerns, uh, who uh, committed the, the very heinous uh, crime of the Sandy Hook massacre, if, if that's what it can be called, um, and the reason I think that had a very significant legal impact, although it may not be completely felt now, is that <clears throat> I can't remember a time when the gun control issue and the Second Amendment issue was so loud. Uh, I think Columbine happened in 1999, and since then we've had several large massacres, two in 2012 alone, one being the, the uh, movie theater massacre. And... Um, Adam Lanza's attack, um, as heinous as it was on children, has really spurred a very significant discussion and has polarized um, the country quite significantly. Even on my own personal Facebook page, I've never seen, I of course, stay out of it, but uh, I've never seen such enormous um, polarization and such loud opinions based on the heinous crime that Adam Lanza committed. I think one of the reasons that's true is the emotional impact that that case had. I mean, in 2012, we've seen Matthew Holmes. We had the Empire State Building shooting, the Sikh shooting, the National Research Council. Isn't it amazing that I can rattle so many off? All of those happened in 2012. But here, just the, the raw, emotional, uh, visceral reaction to somebody killing their mom and then, and then cornering, um, you know, a, a number of school children you almost can't discuss the case without sort of reliving the the feelings we have and i think you're absolutely right i think that's one of the reasons that it really has brought this issue of gun control back uh, front and center um and obviously the mother being shot with one of her own guns that yeah. you know didn't help to diffuse that some of the persons involved in the debate have uh, uh, characterized uh, the commencement of the discussion as a knee-jerk reaction and I think at this point, given the uh, scope and gravity of that, along with all the other ones Wendy just mentioned and John, you just mentioned, it's definitely not a knee-jerk reaction. It's something that does require some careful reflection by our, all of us in our country in terms of what the right thing to do now is. Who, who else would you suggest for the person who had the greatest impact in the law this year? Well, I might, I might go uh, twice here in a row and, say, and go back to uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. I think his decision on the Affordable Care Act in 2012 was incredibly significant. 
um, and there'll be this will not be the last we've heard of this line of, of cases. Oh, that's de- definitely true. There will be a lot of follow-up cases. I would I would have a tie with Justice Kennedy, who had once again this past term decided the greatest number of five, the five to four decisions, the greatest number of them, uh, and is a, a person uh, of. Uh, that really does have a combination of the sensitivity of the law and the, the practicality of how people really live. So I, I would nominate the two of maybe as co-recipients. And I think that's I think that's uh, a good idea because earlier I, I identified conservative and liberal justices, and I think Justice Kennedy stands out a little bit differently in that regard. Yeah. I believe it was uh, Earl Warren was uh, brought to the court by, was it President Eisenhower? He was. Uh, who was a Republican, right. and then became one of the most liberal uh, justices with the but Warren Earl, Court. Earl Warren was governor of California. Uh, was governor of California, governor of California, yeah. but uh, went on in his uh, supreme as a Supreme Court Chief Justice to lead one of the most liberal courts uh, ever. And um, it seems like uh, perhaps Justice Roberts is on his way toward that trend. Perhaps we'll <laughs> Interesting. see. Interesting. <laughs> well, we we are about out of time for the year. But what do you expect to be big topics next year? We've already said gun 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 control. I think uh, Wendy, you said uh, social media and all the issues related to social media. Uh, I would add. Um, affirmative action. The Supreme Court has uh, a, a very emotional case from the University of Texas about admission to the law school at the University of Texas. Uh, there's there are voter initiatives around uh, the country, and it just seems to be heating up. That topic, which has been big for a while, seems to be heating up. Um, I, supp- I think, John, you had mentioned same-sex marriage was going to be big. I think mental health is going to be enormously big. I think one of the things that this sad case of Adam Lanza brought again to the forefront was really the misunderstanding of symptomology and red flags and what kind of disorders do and don't predispose you to violence and how to look for symptoms of each. I think we are all, unless we're all doctors, we are woefully misinformed. And I'd even tie that into social media because what was being reported shortly Mm -hmm. after that crime Mm -hmm. was inaccurate information about what are the signs and symptoms of things like Asperger's and, and autism and some of these other um, some of these other disorders. So I think we're going to see a, a real trend to educate the public, not just employers, but even uh, consumers, as to what what do different mental illnesses entail and how do we detect them early so we make sure nobody who's prone to gun violence has a gun. <laughs> Tie I agree. those two things together. Yeah, I have another very broad United States issue, and that is um, when the public uh, will grow extremely uh, weary of the gridlock in our congressional congressional and houses uh, and our executive branch. Um, when is it that the public will finally stand up and say, you know, enough's enough. We need to have our, um, our, our government working in coordination with one another, working toward bettering the country rather than fighting with one another. I, I'm just curious as to when that's going to happen. And I'll make a dangerous prediction that there will be a lot of law and a lot of disputes, many of which we can't even see now during uh, 2013. So our guests on Law Review today are uh, Attorney John Fisk, Judge Kenneth Medell, and Attorney Wendy Patrick. Thank you for being with us on this special year-end show. Uh, They are, of course, speaking as individuals, not as representatives of their offices. We also thank our producers, Hank Crook, Grace Garner, Ben Pesner, and Katrina Julian, uh, we appreciate their efforts on behalf of the Law Review. 
We invite you, our audience, to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting lawreview.podbean.com. We enjoy hearing from you, so send a message to us through the lawreview.podbean.com site. And all of our best wishes to all of you from Law Review and from the Legal Roundtable. Until next time, this is Steve Smith. The Law Review stands adjourned. Happy New Year.